All right, so as I was saying, we began our series in Revelation last week. Uh, we, grow, we, we dove deeply into verses 1 through 8 and did some overview, so I'm not going to recap that. The message is on the website uh, and the uh, podcast. I encourage you to go back and listen, especially if it's your first time here, because all of our foundational information for the book is there. Uh, we will keep drawing on it, um, but we're going to keep moving through our text this morning. Most importantly, if you weren't here last week, Here's the big idea. This book, the first few words of this book, tell us about the book. It is the revelation of Jesus Christ. Our outline from last week, it is the revelation of Jesus Christ with grace from Jesus Christ to the glory of Jesus Christ. That's the summary of the book. And if you get deviated from that, if you start thinking about world history or uh, try to make sense of, of, of details that are unclear, you will miss the, as we said last week, you will miss the forest for the trees. So many people are so worried about peeling the bark off of the trees in Revelation that they miss the glory of Christ. This morning, we're going to look at the glory of Christ, um, especially the aspect of light. John eight twelve, Jesus famously says when he's walking among Jerusalem, raises his voice and says this, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. That's what we're looking at this morning. That Christ and Christ through his church, in his church, we are lights of the world. One of the other things we're going to do this morning, we're going to look at that theme of light as it goes through. We're going to look at a lot of Old Testament references. We mentioned last week. That Old Testament quotations, allusions, and symbols, there are more of them in Revelation than the rest of the New Testament combined. Um, but we need to understand them because a lot of what John is drawing on is Old Testament imagery. So to give you an illustration, B.B. Warfield, the great Princeton theologian and uh, minister, said understanding Old Testament symbolism without the New Testament is like walking into a dark room. When you walk into a dark room without the lights on, you can tell there, there might be a chair over there. Maybe there's a couch. I think there's a, there's a picture on my wall, but I got to kind of feel my way through. I can't really tell what's going on in, in, the, in the room. There's maybe a place to sit down, but I don't know much more than that. But when Christ comes, when the fullness of God dwelt bodily, the word becomes flesh, the light of the world comes, the lights come on, and now we know that there's a beautiful painting on the wall. Now we know the texture of the carpet. Now we know the, the shape and the shade of the lamp. Now we know all of the uh, tapestry on the wall and the, and the uh, carpet on the floor. That's what happens when we open the Old Testament in light of the full revelation of what we have in the new. Christ turns the shadows and the things that are unclear in the Old Testament into substance. And that is how we interpret. That's our, our hermeneutical lens as we're going through the book of Revelation. We're going to interpret what is unclear by what is clear. And we're going to look at a lot of that Old Testament imagery. And we can't hit every Old Testament reference. We have a lot, and I'm just scratching the surface. But here's my goal. My goal this morning is that what John is seeing in Revelation is not anything new. What John is seeing in Revelation is what God has been declaring all along. The shadows that the, the, the prophets were groping for in the darkness, knowing that there's something great there, we now see with a spotlight shown on. We see them clearly because Christ has revealed them to his people, and Christ is glorifying himself in his church. So that's where we're going to be this morning. Uh, I'm just going to read uh, verses 9 through 11, but uh, we are going to be covering the rest of chapter 1, and all of two and three. Yes, we can do it. Revelation 1, verse 9. I, John, your brother and partner in tribulation, and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in, that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on, on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book. And send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we praise you this morning. 
that you have revealed yourself to us. That just like these weak and imperfect churches, the end of the first century, you send your word to weak and imperfect churches throughout the centuries. Who are we, Lord, that you would be mindful of us? Who are we that you would send your, your word to us, that you would open our eyes, that you would send Christ for us, that you'd continue to sanctify us and grow us through your spirit, that you continue to teach us and refine us and shape us into the image of our Savior? Lord, would we, would we see him this morning? Would Christ be glorified? Would the church be encouraged? Would we know that in Christ we are saved, we are redeemed, we are set apart, we are held, we are loved, we are kept, and we are conquerors because our King is victorious. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Uh, So still we're in chapter one. Chapter one is all introductory material. So we're going to be adding more to what we uh, looked at last week, and it's going to be helpful for the rest of the book. So all of these, th- these details, when we start to get into the, the thick of the book of Revelation, when we start to get into all of the imagery, the uh, trumpets and the bowls and the dragon and the beasts and all those things, don't forget what we're going to talk about this morning. Don't forget who's writing, why he's writing, who he's writing to, and his purpose in writing. Here's the first thing you're going to see about the author here, John the Apostle, who Jesus beloved. John, your brother, right away, this is how he relates to the church. First thing he says, this is John's perspective. I'm your brother, first and foremost. He is writing to people he loves. He is writing to family. This is a family letter. He's also their partner in the tribulation. John knows firsthand right now he is in prison. I know you're going to face difficulties. John is writing from a, from a position of difficulty in jail. He's also, though, a partner in the kingdom. A brother, a partner in, in tribulation, and a partner in the kingdom. That is more important. Yes, tribulation are coming for a time, but we are citizens of the kingdom of God. We are people of the Most High God. Remember that, brothers and sisters. Don't forget that as you read this letter. So many people forget that as they read this letter and are terrified because they look to the symbolism and not to their God. John here is writing to his brothers, partners in the tribulation, partners in the kingdom, and those who are patiently enduring, those who endure in Christ Jesus. So this is written to saints. If you are a brother, if you are a partner in the kingdom, and if you are enduring in Christ, this is to you. This is beneficial to the church throughout the ages. And so like we mentioned, John is there on the island of uh, Patmos. This is not an island paradise. Picture Alcatraz, but less fun. This is rocky, hot. There is very little food, very little little water. Um, They often let the uh, prisoners roam around because there's nothing to do but cut their their feet on, on sharp rocks, and they couldn't swim off. So John is sent there. But it's interesting. John understands all too well it was his gospel ministry that sent him to the island of Patmos. But it was also being on the island of of Patmos that's the occasion for this letter. The Lord used his imprisonment, just like he did for Paul, to reveal to him things that the prophets got glimpses of and which John gets in its entirety. So the Lord uses this opportunity, led by the Spirit, on the day of the Lord, to open John's eyes and to show him things too marvelous for words. And that's what we're going to try to do this morning. We're going to try to describe things that are too marvelous for words with words. Uh, We'll do the best we can. What's the first thing John realizes? I was in the Spirit, verse 10, on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. Now listen, no one uses a trumpet if they're telling a secret. Trumpets, every time you see trumpets in in the word of God, they are loud, they're to announce, they're to proclaim, they're to gather. Everybody listen up. This is something important. In Exodus 18, when Moses was on Mount Sinai, the voice of the Lord was described as a loud trumpet. 
Now John again is hearing the voice of the Lord as a loud trumpet. It is the voice of the Lord Jesus Christ himself saying to John, write what you see in a book and send it to seven churches. Let's talk about these uh, seven churches for a moment. These seven churches, um, these are all within a 100-mile radius of the island of Patmos. It's actually in, uh, in a uh, clockwise half circle as well. So you send the letter, and it kind of naturally goes around to those churches. It's in a very small area, about a 100-mile radius, basically the size of central Florida, from like, from like Sanford to, to Tampa. That's the area. So that's where John sent him. There's a lot more churches than that in Asia. But he sends them to those specifically. Remember our conversation last week about the number seven? There's going to be a lot more of that this week. But there is a, a, a completeness, a uh, perfection when the number seven's used. So these churches specifically have things to teach us. And they are representative of, of all other churches. And so, first thing we have to understand is these are contemporary churches to John. They are written to people, real people, real Christians, with real temptations almost 2,000 years ago. So we must understand what they heard and what was applied to them before we can apply it to us. As always, when we're reading Scripture, we must know what the intention of the original author was, the original audience, what the original audience was reading. We can't read uh, 21st century figment, uh, um, figures and um, you know, our figures of, of speech into the text. So uh, that church was under great persecution. And so in a time of widespread persecution, sexual and doctrinal temptations, um, we may not have the persecution they did, but we certainly have the sexual and doctrinal temptations that they did. There's much we can learn from them, and we'll do that on the uh, last portion of our our sermon. We're going to spend most of our time setting up the letters. I gave you a uh, handout. We'll go over the handout in a moment. But the handout is so I don't have to get into uh, every, every letter, but we'll look at the uh, patterns. But the first thing I want you to see is everything we looked at last week and what we're going to look at today, all of the attributes of Christ, the descriptions of Christ in chapter 1 are opening up the letters of chapter 2 and 3. Every letter in chapter 2 and 3 opens with the quality of Christ already seen in chapter 1. So pay attention to these, these details. All right, verse 12, this is where the vivid imagery begins. The first of, of, of many. John is seeing heavenly things and trying to put them into earthly terminology. He will try to write about things too glorious to read, or, or excuse me, to, uh, for words. And this reads like an Old Testament vision. This reads very much like something we would see out of Zechariah or Ezekiel or Isaiah or Daniel. Uh, but we need the background to understand. So I'm going to deal with the lampstands in a moment. But right now, I really want to uh, I want to dive in to the Son of Man. The Son of Man is key to understanding this, this book. Remember last week, this is Jesus' favorite title for himself. Here's what John sees. When I turned to see a voice that was speaking to me, and on turning, I saw the seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, keep that in mind for later, one like a Son of Man. We read Daniel 7 last week. The Son of Man is a, a figure who looks like a man, but who shines, who, who is surrounded by thunder and lightning, and he goes before the Ancient of Days, the, the Son going before the Father, and he's given all thrones, all dominion, all power. But here, we get details about his, his appearance. Uh, this is similar to what Daniel, we, that was Daniel 7 last week. Look at Daniel 10 this week. Daniel 10, Daniel in chapter 10, sees almost the exact same vision. Daniel sees one like a son of man. Daniel chapter 10, 5 through 8. I lifted up my eyes and looked. Behold, a man clothed in linen with a belt of fine gold from Euphaz around his waist. His body was like beryl, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude. Sound familiar? And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision, for the men who were with me did not see the vision." 
but a great trembling fell upon them and they fled and hid themselves. Think about this. We're just reading words on a page. You want to know how awesome this is? They didn't see it, but they were terrified. Just being in the presence of Daniel seeing this vision, they flee. They tremble by what they can't even see. And what happens to Daniel? So I was left alone with this great vision, and no strength was left in me. My radiant appearance was fearfully changed, and I retained no strength. Keep this in mind as John sees this. This sucked all the life out of Daniel. This terrified everyone who was even near him because his whole countenance changed. This is, made to make an, this is meant to make an impact on us. This is similar to what the disciples saw on the Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus glowing. As we, as we go through this, um, here's just a, a little kind of side note. This is why we got to be careful with and not look to man-made images of Christ. Why we do not promote and worship pictures and try to picture the face of a man because this is what Christ looked like. This is who he is. And I love, Carter did a, a great job on the uh, kids sheet. Adults, you should take one home too. But let's, let's go through these. The son of man, he's clothed with a long robe with a golden sash around his chest. This is what the priests were required to wear. This is, this, this is priestly imagery from Exodus 28. He is dressed like a holy priest. He has uh, white hair on, on his head like white wool, like snow. White is a reference for purity, but also wisdom. He is, he is, he is wise beyond anyone else. His wisdom is, is pure. It is without spot, it is without blemish. He has eyes like the flame of fire. This is judgment language. This is purging, purifying, refining. How do we know? Revelation 19. Revelation 19. When Christ returns, look at the description. Again, John is not seeing um, Jesus meek and mild. John is seeing Jesus, the conquering judge, returning to destroy his enemies. That is the picture, the lasting image that John is to have in his mind. Revelation 19, verse 11. Then I saw the heavens open, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like flaming fire, and on his head are many diadems or jewels. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, that's going to come up in just a moment, with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress with the fury and the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. That is who John is seeing. The next time we see Jesus, that's what we will see. And that is what we are to remember as we read this letter. He also has bronze feet, like they're refined in a furnace. His feet, he is rooted, he stands on moral perfection. He is completely purified. There is no dross, there is nothing extra in him. He is pure from the soles of his feet to the top of his head. And he has a voice that roars like many waters. This also is a vision. Ezekiel, Ezekiel 43.2. Should be up on the screen. Ezekiel's vision of the glory of God. And behold, the glory of God of Israel was coming from the east. And the sound of his coming was like the sound of many waters, and the earth shone with his glory. What are the last two things he sees? The voice, the sound of many waters, and the whole earth shining because of his glory. Everything that the prophets were looking forward to, John is seeing, and it's like sensory overload in his face right now. In his right hand, he held the seven stars, which we'll see in just a moment, the angels of the, of the churches. And from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. 
Now, this type of sword, this, this broad sword, this is not just to kind of um, cut and harm someone. This was to slice and divide. This will cut you in half, and it's supposed to. This is a broad sword for dividing. This is what the servant of the Lord was prophesied to be in Isaiah 49. I told you we got a lot of references here. They'll be on the screen, but uh, if you can flip through, if you're good at your, your sword drills, all puns intended, join me in Isaiah 49. Isaiah 49, verse 1. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother. He named my name. He made my mouth... Remember that, like a sharp sword. Why his mouth? This is what his words would do. In the shadow of his hands, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow, and in his quiver, he hid me away. And he said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. That's going to be key. Because all of these prophecies, they needed Israel to complete. They were promised to Israel. Who is faithful Israel? the servant of God. And so this servant, with a sword coming out of his mouth, what does that mean? Jesus tells us what that means in Mark chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10, excuse me. Matthew chapter 10, 34 through 39. He says, do not think that I have come to bring peace on earth. He does not come to bring peace on earth. There is peace with whom his favor rests, but not to the whole earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. This is not the popular Jesus that most people like to claim, but this is true. Remember, it is a sword that comes forth from his mouth. It is his word. What will his word do? For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter uh, against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. We prayed about this this morning in intercessory prayer. How many of us has the gospel caused divisions in our family? How many of us have people hated us for standing on the word of God? Jesus promised it. Because if, if you stand with me, you will either love me or you will hate me. They persecuted me, they will persecute you. And a person's enemies will be those in his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Hebrews 4 tells us that the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, and it cuts right to our heart. You either die to yourself and follow Christ, or you die apart from him. You lose your life in this world, or you lose it in the next. You can't have both. And Jesus says, you must love me more than all else, even mother, father, brother, sister, children, because I am worthy. I am worth it. And the gospel is not one that brings harmony to the whole world. It brings harmony to the church, but it brings division in the world. This is what the Son of Man, and we see persecution in the rest of the book. So the last thing that John sees, his face was like the sun shining in full strength. John is like a deer in a headlights. You ever, you ever, that's, a, that's a true statement. When a deer sees headlights, he doesn't know what to do. He just stops in the middle of the road, doesn't know which way to go. John is so overwhelmed right now. He is trying to describe the details as best, as best he can. The, the Son of Man is powerful and royal and glorious and terrifying. And John falls on his face and worships. The point of this text and this introduction and this book is to marvel at Christ. To worship him. To fear him. The son of man is building his church. And when he comes, he's coming to purge those in the church and the rest of the world with it. So, we looked at Matthew 16 last week. So when Jesus asked them in Matthew 16... I know I'm out of order in my slides, but great. You found it, Seth. Good job. Uh, Matthew 16, verse 13. When he asked them, he's asked them a very specific question. Now, when Jesus came to the disciples in Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? He is referring to the Son of Man. These, old, these young men raised in the Old Testament, they know this very clearly. 
And they said, well, some say it's John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. Others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, the most important question anyone on this planet will ever answer, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. That is the son of man. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, the rock of your confession, knowing that I am Christ, the son of the living God, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Brothers and sisters, don't forget this when we go through the rest of the book. The one who is building the church is the same son of man who shines like the sun, whose voice is like the trumpet, like the roar of mighty waters. He is building his church. He promises that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Should we be intimidated or encouraged when we read the book of Revelation? Amen. But... John, let's not fault John here. This is only natural. When I saw, verse 17, I fell at his feet as though dead. But I love this. Don't miss this little detail. But he laid his right hand on me. This sweet comfort, the loving right hand of the Savior. And he whispers, speaks to John the words that every saint needs to hear again and again and again. Fear not. Because we are fearful people. If we were to look upon the Son of Man, we would fall down and not know how to get up again unless he picks us up. Fear not, I am the first and the last. We looked at the Alpha and the Omega last week. None is greater than I. None comes before, none comes after. Fear not. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. If I live and you're in me, you live. Fear not. Death can't hold me. It can't hold you. Fear not. How do we know death can't hold him? I have the keys of death in Hades. What do keys do? Keys open and close. They lock. Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, has the key to death itself. He opens it whenever he wants. And he closes it. And you cannot overturn what he has opened or what he has closed. He has that prerogative. This is how we overcome death because he has the keys to death itself. Fear not, church. And so now he tells John to write, therefore, verse 19, the things that you have seen, the things that are, and the things that are to take place after this. This is the already not yet interpretive grid of the book and the interpretive grid of the Christian life. We are people who are walking in a dark world by the light of eternity. He tells John, there are things that are, things are going on now, and things that are yet to happen. But for us, we know what is happening now, but more importantly, we know what will happen because of Christ. John, tell them what you see. But there is more to come. All right, so... Um, as we get into 20 and uh, 21, it's one of the few times in the book where a mystery is actually revealed and made plain. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, imagine that. Like, you see a vision of Christ himself, the Son of Man, and then he tells you, oh, you remember what you saw in my right hand? This is what was in my right hand. Um, the seven stars you saw in my right hand and the seven gold lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So let's deal with the angels and the, or the, the stars and the lampstands. Angels are mentioned over 60 times in the book of Revelation. Angels are not what you see in the Hallmark Channel. They are God's warriors and God's messengers. So there is much debate and many questions about what uh, what do the angels have to do with the churches? Because to each letter it says, to the angel of the church. Let me give you the key. I don't know. But here's what I do know. We don't need to know how angels interact with the church. We know that angels interact with the church. We know that God protects his people. That angels are heavenly warriors. And we know this, Hebrews 1.14. We know what they do. 
are they not all ministering spirits, speaking of the angels, sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Praise God that our God holds us in his hand and our God sends out his warriors to hold us. Even in the most faithless church, the terrible leaders, disobedient people, God is sovereign over those churches and God has sent his mighty warriors and his mighty messengers to keep his people, even if there is one saint. Amen. So what does that tell us? It tells us that we, saints, brothers and sisters in Christ, we participate already in the spiritual realm. Peter tells us we are partakers of divine nature. Even though we have not yet seen it, we now already partake of it. We are, as uh, Greg Beale says, we're not mere earth dwellers. I think it's easy to, to forget and just assume that this is all there is. There is an entire spiritual world that our God rules over. And the battle that we see in this book is that of spiritual warfare kind of laid before our eyes. And the angels are fighting on the front lines. They are fighting to serve us. Praise God for that. Now, so you got the angels, the stars. What about the, the lampstands? There'll be a couple pictures up there. I thought it'd be, it'd be helpful. Um, these lampstands, uh, Jews call them menorahs now, but... Uh, so you've got seven little arms going up. Each one of them has a little bowl on top of it with oil. So each lamp stand has seven lamps on it. Um, this is a, a common Old Testament imagery. There, there's one more image. Um, this, this is described, if you want to read more, uh, is Exodus 25. There was one of these in the uh, tabernacle. Solomon, who has the uh, prototypical temple. So uh, what Solomon built was to look forward to the temple that is to come. He made seven. So there was one in the tabernacle. There was seven in Solomon's temple. But Zechariah prophesies a temple that is to come. Zechariah 4, there are seven. And it is by the power of the Spirit that these seven lampstands of seven go out to faithful Israel. Uh, If you read Zechariah, it parallels Revelation so closely, it's scary. Probably because the same God giving revelation to the Old Testament saints and to John. But here's the point. We see seven and seven and seven again. This is completeness. This is perfection. Remember, every time we see the number seven in the book of Revelation, it is symbolic. Christ is saying that there will be a light. There will be lamps. Perfectly, completely from my churches to the world, they will bring in, I will bring in all of faithful Israel through these lamps. So remember Jesus told us, remember we look back at John 8, 12, I am the light of the world, but Jesus also told us in Matthew 5, Matthew 5, 14 through 16. And I want to put all this together. Matthew 5, 14 through 16. Where he says, you are the light of the world. Wait a second. Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. He also says, you are the light of the world. If you are in Christ, Christ shines through you. His light becomes your light because you are truly united with him. He shines through his bright, to his bride. You are the light of the world. You are a city set on a hill. That's what churches are to be. Literal lighthouses. When people are in, are in storms and get tossed to and fro by the waves, who can wreck themselves on the rocks. We are to be a city on a hill. That light is never to go out. That's why he says, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket. That would be stupid. It, it defeats the purpose of the lamp. But they put it on a stand, and it gives light to all the house. This is what the people of God are supposed to be. This is what the churches are supposed to be. This is what Jesus is telling John. You are my lamps. You are my lampstands. You are a city on a hill. You are my people. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Why are the church to be lamps and lightstands? To glorify God. We let our light shine so that God will be glorified. Now let's take it one step further. Why lampstands and not just lights? Why not just lamps? 
Now remember, where were lampstands held? In the temple. Let's put it together. Christ is faithful Israel. Christ has light in his temple. There is no more temple in Israel. What is the temple now? The kingdom of priests. Faithful Israel in Christ. We are the temple. Paul tells us this many times, but look what he says in 2 Corinthians 6, uh, 6.16. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God right now. We are the place where God receives worship, where he is pleased to dwell. Not idols. I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. This is who we are, church. Don't forget this when we get to the middle of the book. I'm going to have to remind you again because you will. But we need to remember it. And for a time, we are Christ's lampstands. Think about that. The grace of God in our lives, our joy, the transformation from sinners to saints, the lost being found, the good works that come out of our salvation, these are lamps to the world that shows this is a place of safety. This is a place of life. This is a hospital. This is a lighthouse. Amen. And we will be that light until Christ returns, but let's get to the end of the book, chapter 21. Now let's put all this together in the fullness of the book. What do we see in the new heavens, new earth, in the new Jerusalem? Chapter 21, verse 22. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine. The lamp is the lamb. The light of the world has not changed. Right now, the light of the world is Christ shining in his church. But in the new heavens, new earth, it is Christ himself shining forever. No more darkness, no more night, no more death. We live in that light, brothers and sisters. That is who we are right now. We are the, 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 the lampposts of our God. And so remember the detail from earlier. He walks among. He stands in the midst of the lamppost. That reminds us that Christ is not separate from his church. Christ walks in. He is among. He is moving in the church right now. And he holds the stars, the, 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 the angels, the protectors, the messengers of God to the churches. He holds them in his hand. So remember all that as we get to the churches. It's so easy to get caught up in which, which church are we and what can I get from this. And that's all helpful, but don't miss the point. These are Christ's churches. They're in Christ's hands. Never forget that. And notice, as we go through, this letter begins with what Christ, who Christ is and what he's doing. And it ends with what he will do in his church when they come to completion. So you've got a little handout in front of you. And we have uh, many visions that we're going to look at in the book of Revelation. Uh, I told you it's going to be a short kind of flyover series, but we're going to look at seven series of revelations. This is the first one. So if the church is the recipient and the beneficiary of the visions of Revelation, this is why we start with the church. All right? And it's natural to start with them. So here's what I want you to know. I won't spend as much time on, on, on these churches. I'm going to move them kind of quickly through application. I want you to see uh, the, uh, the uh, train of thought here. For each church, there is a city. Here's the other thing you need to know. Um, I'm not going to get into kind of geography and culture, but every detail in every letter actually has something to do with what's going on in the church and with the region around it. So there are great commentaries out there. Last week I recommended William Hendrickson, uh, G.K. Beale, um, Derek Thomas, uh, William Mounts. There are many, many, many more. So I'm not going to get into those. But there's things that are going on in each of these cities that pertain to the details. So we begin with a, a city. And then there are words to those city, cities by Christ himself. But those words come from an attribute. He doesn't name himself. Behold, I am, um, let me get back here. 
To the angel of the church in Ephesus write the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. That we've already seen. So that's your second column. We've already seen this in chapter one. To each church, there is a series of um, either commendations or condemnation. So there is commendation. This is what I am pleased with in you. You have good works. Condemnation, here's where you fall short. Warning, repent or else. Exhortation, be encouraged in this area. But to each one, without fail, there is a conqueror's promise. In each church, there will be ones who reign with Christ forever. And each of these conquering promises are fulfilled in the final chapters of the book. See what, see what we're doing here? We're looking from everything that Christ is setting up in chapter 1 to what he's talking about in 2 and 3, promised, which is actually fulfilled in 19, really 19 through 22. Make sense? So that's why we don't have to go through all of them. Um, but a couple of things that I want you to pay attention to, what we will lean into is the conqueror's promise. This is the point of these, of, of these letters. The point is not what you go through on your way there. But the point of the letters is, if you're in me, you are a conqueror. If you're in me, you overcome. And shall anything separate us from it? Uh, we, we love Romans 8.37. And we should read it. That, that great section, Romans 8, culminates in all the things that we have in union with Christ. Shall anything separate us from Christ? Tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? What does he say in verse 37? No! Because in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Brothers and sisters, never forget you are conquerors in Christ because Christ is the conqueror. And so again, as we look all the way to the end of the book, Revelation 21.7, where Christ shows John that the one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my, be my son. That is the greatest heritage that we have. We are the people of God. He is our God. We are his, his people. Those are the conquerors. That means whatever you go through in this life is temporary. Whatever you go through in this life cannot hold you. We are conquerors already, even though we have not seen it yet, because it is finished in Christ. So this letter is about Christ. These churches are examples of who Christ is, what he requires of his churches, but what he will do for his people in the end. In each one of these letters, we won't get into this, but is repeated the same way, he who has ears to hear. Uh, one more time, Matthew chapter 13. Why do you say he who has ears to hear? Jesus explains it to us. What we're seeing in these, in these letters, they're like prophetic parables. They are telling examples and they're instructive to people who have ears to hear. Here's what Jesus said, uh, chapter 13, verse 10. Then the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, this is key, is also key for the book of Revelation. To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. It's given to the church, not given to outsiders. For to the one who has, you're in Christ, more will be given. You'll, you'll, you'll have more understanding. And you have an abundance. But from the one who's talking about understanding of the kingdom of heaven, that is true riches. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, uh, this is from Isaiah 6, 9, and 10, you will indeed hear but never understand. You will indeed see but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed." lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and didn't see it, and hear what you hear and didn't hear it. Translation, this is written to saints. Brothers and sisters, those with ears to hear, eyes to see, this is for you. You are blessed. 
Because Moses and David and Solomon and Daniel and Ezekiel and Isaiah and Jeremiah and Joel and Malachi and Zephaniah, all down the line, they longed to see. They see glimpses. They, they saw shadows in a dark room. But what we have in Christ is revealed to us plainly. So, if you have ears to hear, you are a new creature because Christ has given you a new life, a new heart. And that new heart comes with new eyes and new ears. And that is how we read the book of Revelation. Not as ones who are fearful, but as ones who are confident in Christ. Okay. All right. So, we're going to run through these kind of quickly for application, um, and I added just for fun and for memory a little mnemonic device. So if any of you have like, uh, had to learn, like when, when we learn Greek and Hebrew, you, you try to remember any silly thing you can to like tie a thought to it. So we're going to try a nickname for each one of these. Ephesus. Ephesus is affectionless. Um, I, want you to, if you, I want you to be able to remember these. Ephesus, say that five times fast, is affectionless. This wealthy, studious, zealous church who had zeal for orthodoxy, but it was dead. Ephesus is affectionless. You've lost your your, your first love. Here's, Here's the lesson here. Don't let your pursuit of truth dampen your heart of love. Or you will lose your lamp, is the warning. Means you'll lose both. If you sacrifice love on the altar of truth, you're going to lose truth and love. And so at the very end where he says, you're to the one who conquers, I'll grant to eat of the tree of life, which is the paradise of God. What he's telling Ephesus is, look for paradise in heaven, not on earth. Things are not going to be perfect here. There is no paradise on earth. But we who love his appearing, we who love Christ and love one another, we have eternal life. This is a real danger in the reformed world. We love theology, we love reading, but so often we can, we can stick to the truth and want to fight people to death on the minor issues and we forget to love our brothers and sisters. Let's not be the church in Ephesus. All right, next one. Church in Smyrna. This church is a church that's going through tribulation. This church has probably uh, had experienced martyrdom because the theme is death. From beginning to the end, to the angel of the church of Smyrna, write the words of the first and last who died and came to life. Jesus begins this letter to those who are being persecuted by saying, don't worry about death. Remember the one who lives? Remember the one who death couldn't hold? Remember that when you face trials and you face persecution. There's no condemnation for them. I love this. There's only encouragement for the persecuted church. Death is not final. So for Smyrna, death won't hurt you. For Smyrna, death won't hurt you. The other thing that is beautiful here that we should take note of is that they are poor. They're not a flashy church, but they're rich with what matters. We should take note of what true riches are. True riches are that the second death has nothing against you. Your physical body may die, but that second death that we talked about a couple weeks ago, where eternal suffering and separation from God, eternal death. It does not hold you. It bears nothing on you. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. You are rich because you'll be with me forever. That is true riches. Um, Next, Pergamum. This is the church on the front lines of spiritual warfare. And this is the uh, church that seems to be doing fairly well. Um, however, they're allowing false teachers and false practices. So if you're on the front lines, be careful. Don't get swept away by uh, Satan or his doctrine or his teachers because Christ has the sword of judgment. Pergamum, I will war with them. Christ is coming to war with them. Okay, this is where Satan dwells, but don't get, don't get friendly. Don't fraternize with the enemy because I am coming to war with them. And so there's also a a temptation that they're partaking of idolatrous practices and and, and eating food sacrificed to idols. So the encouragement here is to seek true food because the world aims at at your, your belly. The world aims at your base desires. 
But look at the promise at the end. I will give you hidden manna. The world wants to feed the flesh. Christ feeds your soul. I will give you hidden manna. Don't be pulled in by what they, they promise. Um, remember you bear the name of Christ. Um, also, I will give him a white stone. In, in, the, in the Roman court, when the jury would, would uh, sit up and they were, when they pronounced it, their, their, their verdict, each juror was given a white stone and a black stone. When they would give their verdict, they would put it on the table in front of them. White was innocent, black was guilty. Jesus says, I will give you true manna and a white stone. And on that stone will be a name that no one knows except the ones who receive it. He knows us by name, and he writes our innocence on a stone. Stones in the Bible, they last. They are for memory, and they're not easily destroyed. This stone will never be destroyed. All right, Thyatira. Um, this is a loving, hardworking church, but they also love to indulge themselves sexually. Um, so this is a, a church that looks good on the outside, but their desires have led them to this temptress, Jezebel. Now, Jezebel is a figure all throughout Scripture, this sensuous woman who, who, who brings men in with, with, with promises of, of fulfillment. Desire Christ, not the worldly temptor, temptresses. So, my little nickname for this, Thyatira, Jezebel's a liar. That's what you remember with them. Because Satan's theologians, Satan's temptresses are hard at work. But there are some who still hold fast. And so there's a great lesson for us in this church. We live in a world of sensuality and worldly indulgence, and it is tempting. It is everywhere. It is so easy to get pulled in, but it only leads to destruction. Jesus says, repent or face the same tribulation she will. All her daughters, everyone who engages with her, I will destroy. So church, be careful because a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Do not let that in. But... To the ones who conquer, the ones who endure, I will give them authority, they will rule, and they will have the bright morning star. The temptations of the world promise us power and esteem and pleasure now, but Jesus says, I have rule and authority that I will give you forever. I am the bright morning star. I give you myself. Do you want me or do you want this trash? Sardis, um, probably uh, Sardis and Laodicea are the uh, worst churches in this, this list. Sardis is lifeless. Sardis is lifeless. The whole congregation, except for a few, have fallen asleep. You seem like you're alive. I, I just put dead works in this chart. I should put dead works equals you are dead. You're dead, except for only a couple of you. I have the life-giving spirit. Notice what he says in the introduction, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I have the life-giving spirit. Look to me for life. Repent, wake up. There's no life outside of me. You're dead right now. But there's also a great encouragement here. Because yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, that they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. Even in the most unfaithful churches, in the most unfaithful cities, be faithful. That even if everyone else goes to hell, literally, you be faithful. You walk in purity. You will walk with Christ. That is the promise to them. Remember the greatest prize. The promise to them is that they'll be clothed in white, and they will have a permanent name that will be confessed forever before the Father. So, saints, be careful of the crowd. If you are the only one and you walk with Christ, you are in good company. Next one. This is the, the pinnacle church. We know the city of Philadelphia. We, we uh, have one. Um, brotherly love. So easily, these are beloved brothers. This is the, the, the ideal church. The beloved brothers. Uh, this is the, the star example of the churches. Jesus says here, I love you. They love one another well, and he loves them. And uh, there is a, a reference here where he says, um, 
who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one will open. This is a direct promise in Isaiah 22. Isaiah 22, 20 through 22. Uh, Eliakim is the, uh, he's the household manager, and he's a shadow of the, the house of Israel that is to come. And that day I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of, of, of Hilkiah, and I will clothe him with your robe, and I will bind your sash on him. Remember that, the robe and the sash? I will commit your authority to his hand. Remember the authority? And he shall be father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. And he and I will place on his shoulder the key, remember keys, open and close, the house of David. He shall open and none shall shut, and he shall shut and none shall open. Every promise to the, the, the prophets and the future of Israel is in Christ, the faithful Israel. This is the greatest conqueror promise as well. They will be pillars. Pillars are secure. They are not going to be moved. They will never leave the temple, the presence of God. The beloved of God will never leave his presence. And they bear the name of Christ himself. They, they inherit Christ's name, and they inherit Christ's city, his heavenly city. But it's also beautiful that Philadelphia is not a large, powerful church. They are small and powerless. You don't seem like much, but I love you. That is a beautiful reminder. Be faithful. Love one another. Keep my word. I will keep you. This is his promise to Philadelphia. Last one, Laodicea, don't want to be you. Um, that's it. Laodicea, we do not want to be you. Uh, this is a very wealthy church because it's a very wealthy area. There's a lot of trade going on, but they were famous for their, their natural springs. Um, a lot of people misinterpret this. Some people say, well, you're either hot or cold. You don't want to be in the middle. No, you don't want to be cold toward Christ. That's stupid. Um, this is, that's not what this means. This is a city that on one, one side of the city, uh, uh, in one valley, had hot springs. Those had healing properties, and a lot of people came, and they, and, and they did business there because they swore by the properties of the water. And then other places had cold springs that were good for drinking. But if you have lukewarm, tepid water, it is useless and it is dangerous. You don't, you, don't, you don't drink lukewarm water. You can drink cold water. You can be healed by hot water. Either one of those things is good. They had neither. Their riches had made them lifeless. And Jesus is disgusted. I will spit you out of my mouth. Why? You are rich, but everything you have is worthless to me. You are dead. And he says the famous line at the end. But I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come to him and eat with him and he with me. This is not the verse for evangelism. This is the verse for nominal Christians who think they're alive, that they're dead. You stand in my presence with other believers. I am standing in front of you. And you have hardened your hearts. You have put your, your trust in your, in your riches. Nominal Christians, open, our, uh, open your eyes. Um, I, this is a fulfillment of Isaiah 55. Um, again, almost a verbatim quote. And again, I am, I am holding back here because there are so many Old Testament references that we can go over. Isaiah 55, just one through three. Where it says, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk. Without money, without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live and I will make an everlasting covenant. My servant, sure love for David. So within Laodicea, they are eating of the fruit of the world. But he says, if anyone opens to me, I will come in and I will eat with him. Don't buy what the world is selling. Buy from me. I will give you what will not wear out. This is the gospel call. Don't sit here and think that you can just claim the name of, of Jesus and hold on to everything in the world. Don't claim that you are a spring within yourself. He will spit you out. There is only one spring of living water. There is only one light. And this is the knock. Come to me. Buy without money, without price. Eat 
Come to me and I will make an everlasting covenant because of the name of my son David. Jesus Christ, son of David, have mercy on me. So the, the promise here to this church, don't get too comfortable. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit on my throne as I also conquered and sat down on the, uh, with the Father on his throne. Don't get comfortable here because there's, there, there's a throne in heaven and it's much better than anything you have here. Um, that is why we're going to begin with the throne of God next week. So brief conclusion. We are the light in the darkness. So the lesson here, there are many lessons here, but the church shines in various degrees. We all reflect and glorify God differently. Every church has their, their, their strengths and has their weaknesses. Every light shines in different ways and in different in, in intensities. But just know that it is Christ's church. He is building it. The Son of Man is bringing his conquerors. And one day we will be united with him and we will see that glorious face. We will fall and worship and we will worship forever and we will never get tired of it. So, what would Christ say about our church? I really hope it's Philadelphia. Jesse would love that. But what would, what would Christ say about us? What would Christ say about you? What do you love? What do you cherish? What are you known for? What do you trust in? What teaching do you love? What are you going after? Where is your value? Where will you spend eternity? So saints, here's what I want you to take away. Remember the Son of Man. He is awesome. He is wonderful. Look to Him. He has shined His light in us. He has made us His temple. In Him we conquer. And I'm going to give you a few moments to prepare your hearts and minds for this table because this is a table for conquerors. Amen.